please do listen to my cry of distress. Dear colleagues at the WHO, my name is Geert van den Bosch. My background is veterinary medicine. I'm a certified expert in microbiology and infectious diseases. I have a PhD in virology and I have a long-standing career in human vaccinology. I'm urging you to immediately open the scientific debate on how human interventions in the COVID-19 pandemic are currently driving viral immune escape. You've also been very clear about what to expect if things start to, to go the way that you are predicting. And we can already see a number of markers that are suggesting some very significant problems down the road. Hi there, my name is Rob Verkirk and welcome to Speaking Naturally, our new series of interviews that are all about encouraging, not stifling, debate in controversial areas of science, particularly as they relate to natural health, which is after all our remit. As you've probably gathered, our guest today is none other than Belgian vaccinologist, Dr. Geert van den Bosch, whose controversial views on the risks posed by mass vaccination have lit up the internet over the last 10 days or so. I'll be asking Dr. van den Bosch what kind of reactions he's had to the publication of his views, both good and bad, what he sees that some of his colleagues perhaps don't, We'll be looking at what kinds of indicators might be available to see if Dr. van den Bosch's views are becoming a reality, as worrisome as that might be. And we'll compare this SARS-CoV-2 outbreak with previous coronaviruses, namely SARS-1 and MERS. We'll even be looking at what defines a vaccine, given that the front-runner vaccines are like none that have preceded them. We'll finish on Dr. van den Bosch's take home what he thinks governments and individuals should do, given what we now know. Dr. Van den Bosch, welcome to Speaking Naturally. A real pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you. Um, this is all about discourse, and I know discourse is a, is a difficult subject at the moment. Um, there are different camps, different people um, in different silos with different views. It's extremely important now that we have open channels of, of discourse and really this is what we're attempting to do so so welcome um here perhaps perhaps you can um, just let us know what has happened since you have released this remarkable information that's has gone dare i say viral yeah well uh, rob uh, a lot of things have happened on on one hand side there have been plenty of reactions, uh, lots of support, also, of course, uh, criticism. But on the other hand, uh, I must say not a lot has happened in terms of uh, the people who I was expecting, whom I was expecting to react, have not been reacting so far. And these are really the, uh, the authorities, the health authorities, especially, uh, who are really, yeah, uh, I mean, responsible for uh, uh, initiating and, uh, and, and conducting this whole uh, mass vaccination uh, campaign and also to provide the guidelines, uh, etc. 
So that is that has been a little bit, I must say, uh, disappointing because in that way we don't get to this scientific debate, which I'm all the time uh, calling for. But of course, that can take time. Uh, I, I know we, when we have dealt with difficult issues in relation to governments, they always take much longer to to determine. They they have scientists that that often find it difficult to speak out, and I think. Later on in our discussion, you might talk a little bit about that. But um, if, we, if we just take some of the rebuttals, obviously, uh, um, Lee Dryberg at dryberg.com has is asked over the weekend if he can publish the, the article that, that I wrote about what, what you've been saying. And obviously, he's also published um, um, comments from three pretty high-profile scientists, um, uh, Dr. Baron Bridal, um, Canadian viral immunologist, um, Nut um, Witkowski, um, who you'll know as an epidemiologist, a scientist, a biostatistician, and of course, um, Dr. Mike Yeadon, um, ex-VP and uh, chief scientific officer for, for Pfizer. Interestingly, they all agree with you on the problem of lockdowns, and that's, that's quite a big statement for these three to be making, and yourself, that the primary non-pharmaceutical strategy that has been used is flawed. I think we're all aware of around about 30 studies now that show that lockdowns don't work. Um, in, in certain other areas, particularly in relation to the vaccination driving um, further um, mutant variants that are going to create a, a vicious spiral, um, Interestingly enough, it is Dr. Bridal, perhaps the most qualified of all three, who's most in agreement. What do you say about um, the kind of views, critical views and supportive views that you've had so far? Has it changed any of your own viewpoints? No, it certainly has not uh, changed any of my viewpoints. And it's only because people bring this to my attention that I read these things because I'm not really proactively searching in the literature for somebody uh, saying I'm wrong or uh, I'm right. Uh, but I do think that uh, the major uh, factor of disagreement on the vaccine-induced immune escape for me is, I really don't understand. I really cannot understand how you can say this. Um, some people even disagree that immune escape would have been already a result of the uh, initial prevention infection measures. Uh, and my only argument, and it will be exactly the same argument uh, or the same, I would say, comment to these people, is please do look at the mutations that are now selected in those variants. And as you know, uh, as we go, the number of infectious variants is just increasing. And as we have seen uh, already in November, when these infectious strains uh, popped up, before even the mass vaccination was, uh, was implemented, we have seen that these mutations were converging more and more to the domains of the S protein that are responsible for uh, enhanced infectiousness, uh, for binding, for stronger binding to the uh, receptor domain of the susceptible cell. So it cannot be that uh, these mutations were simply at random because otherwise they would not have, they would not be converging all to similar domains within the S protein. That is one thing. So along the same lines of reasoning, I would say these 
to these people, but it's not, you know, in order for me to, to be wrong, proven wrong or right, but look now at what is going to happen with increased mass vaccination. These infectious variants, are they going to increase the selection of their mutations within even a more narrow domain of the spike protein, namely the receptor binding domain, which is in fact the domain that is most targeted by the antibodies that we are using through those vaccines. If this is happening, I mean, this is, uh, I would say, the best criterion to really prove that the mutations that are now occurring in those new variants that we see, like, you know, every second week we have, uh, we have new ones, that they are not selected or not chosen at random. Well, that, that, that's exactly the point. That's what drew such interest to me as, a, as an ecologist by original training. Um, looking at the evolutionary argument, I think is very interesting. And, and I'd love you now to just look at the issue of antimicrobial resistance. You know, anyone can argue that, that your views are speculative because everyone's views, let's face it, are speculative because we've never been here before where we see um, a global pandemic with a single highly targeted solution being rolled out at this kind of scale. Um, is there anything we can learn about the highly specific targeted approach that we've used with antimicrobials and now generated a, a global health problem in itself through antimicrobial resistance? Is that same kind of evolutionary pressure applicable to vaccines? I know the literature would tend to say that we've never seen anything like it, but of course we've never tried to vaccinate so many people within such a short time. And again, talking to... Within a pandemic. Within a pandemic, yes. Talking to your critics, some of them will say well, the fact that it's a pandemic doesn't make any difference. And uh, in fact, if you could vaccinate all of them together in the shortest possible time, you'll probably get the best result. But I think what, what you are talking about is, is what happens when you have incomplete immunity as a result of your vaccination strategy. So what lessons, first of all, is the comparison applicable? We've got to learn from history. So what we've learned from AMR, antimicrobial resistance, can we apply this to what's happening now with the vaccine or not? And perhaps the reasons. Well, frankly speaking, I don't see uh, the difference between both. And the reason I'm saying this, and we know, of course, and I will come back to this, that we know that viruses depend on living cells. They cannot autonomously replicate. They need a living cell to replicate it. But otherwise, we are dealing with uh, highly mutable microorganisms that can rapidly insert mutations, select mutations. We are dealing with uh, pressure on the microorganism. Uh, this is whether this is through an antibiotic, a drug, or uh, an immune response. Uh, it could be also a chemotherapeutic or, or whatever. There is, there is a pressure. But this pressure is not sufficient to, in fact, eradicate uh, the virus or to eradicate the microorganism or the bacterium. And this is the example you were given when you take your antibiotics not according to the prescription and you feel better after two or three days and you just stop it because you feel better, but you know that there is some remaining bacteria uh, that can then, uh, of course, cause uh, a flare. So, but I think the thing which is on top very important is that 
if you have this suboptimal immune response, and I will come back to this because this is very, very important, and you still allow the pathogen to replicate, knowing that it has plenty of choice to select mutations to overcome the pressure that you were putting, then it is in inevitable to think about mutants that could escape this pressure. Now, that in its own right is, I would say, not dramatic. But if you know passage this immune escape from one person to the other, that's exactly what you would do in a cell culture. If you would like to get this immune escapements well established, what you would do is you would inoculate your virus on living cells in the presence of suboptimal concentrations of antibodies. And then what you do is you take the supernatant and you will passage it on, on the same cell lines in similar conditions. So you repeat these stress conditions, this pressure, and that will enable after multiple passages for these immune escapements uh, to, to establish themselves and to become dominant, frankly. So now we are doing the same when we have massive vaccination campaigns and on top highly infectious uh, variants that, independent of vaccination, will also continue to infect people who will seroconvert, etc. We have plenty of people who are in that condition where the immune response is still not optimal and they are infected by an immune escape variant that they will further propagate, pro pro proliferate. The next person who gets infected has a high likelihood of experiencing the same conditions of suboptimal immune pressure. Yeah, and of course, we, we, we are seeing now some of the variants um, in the UK and Israel becoming the dominant variants. And of course, I think that is, that is accepted. What isn't necessarily accepted is that the mechanism driving that, it's interesting that, that the UK and Israel happen to be two countries with probably the highest vaccination rates. So you, you would argue that that is, if you like, emerging evidence that it is actually the vaccination that's driving the increased development of, of mutants. They're, they're emerging from those places, but obviously not their transmission. They just happen to be more, more transmissible. Yeah, but where do they come from, Robert? I mean, has anybody an explanation where they come from? And I think if this is something which is generally accepted, that you may be driving immune escape variants if you allow the microorganism to replicate, a highly mutable microorganism to replicate in the presence of suboptimal uh, immune pressure. And then you, you have to consider, is there suboptimal immune pressure? Look, 80%, 80% of people who get infected are asymptomatically infected, okay? Mm -hmm. These people develop suboptimal immune responses. That is to say that after they have already eliminated the virus, you, you sh see a short-lived surge in antibodies. Maybe this is not proven, but I'm, I'm pretty convinced that this immune response is suboptimal. Why am I saying this? Well, if it were really, if these people were really well primed and develop antibodies against S protein, you would expect that upon repeated infection, right, even asymptomatic, asymptomatically infected people would end up with a high titers of antibodies. If you prime somebody 
And then on the repeated exposure, you will boost these antibodies if you have really primed them. And I don't think there is any evidence of that, that we see asymptomatically infected people who, you know, over time start all of a sudden developing high and long-lived and long-lived uh, antibody titers. So 80% are dealing with this type of antibodies that are suboptimal. And, we, and, then, and then we are vaccinating people in the midst of the pandemic. Plenty of these people that we are vaccinating are, of course, seroconverting. Yeah. And during the seroconversion, and even after the first dose, your, your antibody response is not fully mature, is not full-fledged. So we are generating plenty, plenty of conditions where the virus is replicating. We are even dealing with highly infectious strains in the presence of, of you know, suboptimal antibody responses. And, and many people at the same time are in this condition, so which enables the virus when it gets passage from one person to the other at each time, not at each time, but a high likelihood that it will encounter the same, uh, the same conditions of suboptimal pressure. And we know those individuals also don't have any cross immunity to some of the new variants. So if they've had naturally acquired infection at one point, um, uh, even if they've had the vaccine, they, 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 generally speaking, may suffer mild to moderate symptoms if reinfected. Um, yeah. So that the, the problem, uh, and I, I guess that that's one of the real issues as far as governments are concerned. They just believe the solution to that is to vaccinate more and more people. Should we yes. just, I mean, in, in looking at this, are there examples? I mean, polio is an example, is it not, where we are beginning to see um, the actually vac vaccine enhanced um, poliomyelitis, for example. Are there any other examples that we can look to where vaccines have made problems worse, not better? Well, I mean, the vaccine, you could not, uh, it would not be fair to say that the vaccine enhanced uh, poliomyelitis uh, has made, uh, is, is dramatic. I mean, these are cases that are due, of course, to, you know, the virus, the virus circulating, also due to the fact that uh, some people uh, who get vaccinated, this was back in the days where we used the oral live attenuated vaccine. Uh, that some people would have weak immunity and just let the virus, you know, replicate and go and, and cause the poliomyelitis. And then, of course, when you get shedding of this, because remember, a lot of people have been naturally immunized thanks to the life attenuated virus that was used as a vaccine and that was spread in the environment. Unfortunately, this is pretty risky because you may have recombinations with other enteroviruses, et cetera, et cetera, and you may have some revertence to virulence. That, that is true. But again, these vaccines, also like smallpox vaccine, uh, have done a fabulous job. But remember, they, they, <clears throat> at places where we have eradicated those diseases, smallpox and almost polio, we have been using live, live vaccines where you stimulate, of course, you know, the full immune system with mucosal immunity, humoral immunity, uh, cellular immunity, where you have uh, interferon secretion, upon, et cetera. So this is a very different situation. We are not using a live attenuated coronavirus. And I'm not saying we should do, 
But I think that should be part of the dis discussion right oh, now. I mean, if you look at the 135 um, vaccines that are in development, some of them are actually live attenuated vaccines, but they're a long, they're taking a lot longer to get through the vaccine sausage machine, if it were. In fact, let's just perhaps have a, a review of, of vaccines. I, I know that the the definition is is pretty broad, and um, looking at um, um, Plotkin and Offit's book, their their book vaccines in, published in two thousand thirteen refers to a vaccine as a immune biological substance designed to produce specific protection against a given disease. And my goodness, that is a, a pretty broad definition. And you could um, perhaps argue that a really healthy meal. Um, would have that effect, so it could be viewed as a vaccine. Um, a lot of the public, um, they will hear the Edward Jenner story every second day. Um, they keep hearing about smallpox. They don't necessarily know that this vaccine using synthetic nucleic acids or mRNA is a very different kettle of fish to a classic vaccine. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on, on the terminology? In, a lot of people see it as a silver bullet, and it's, it's remarkable that there is, you know, governments on the whole have put all their eggs in one basket, and that's the vaccine basket. Um, looking at this definition, does it make sense to you? Is it being exploited at the moment? Well, uh, Rob, when I saw or when I heard the definition that you gave, uh, it comes a little bit as a surprise to me that there is one important word which is missing from that definition and that I guess every vaccinologist would agree that it needs to be in there, which is long-lived. So you don't have a vaccine if you don't have a specific response. So therefore, the vaccines that we are using right now, are they have a specific response. Eh? to S-protein, but also to, to other determinants, of course. But they are also long-lived. This, this, this means that you need to induce an immunological memory. So you need to really to prime that subject so that if this subject encounters the bug in like two or five years from now, this memory is reactivated and exactly the same response is going to be solicited. So it's not just protection. It needs to be specific, which is not the case with your meal, because that protection will not be specific against a particular antigen. And it also needs to be long-lived. And that is, that is referring to the immunological memory, which is not the case with your meal as well, because if you stop taking those meals, it's going to be finished, your protection. What, what do you, if you have very rapid antigenic drift, as you do, say, with flu viruses, we know that by the end of the season, because DNA viruses tend to mutate even more readily, um, to some extent, we know that last year's flu vaccine doesn't work this year. So they also have a bit of a, a problem. Well, isn't it funny that there everybody acknowledges this when, when the, the hemagglutinin, for example, or, or the neuraminidase changes, if there is changes, even we are not talking, uh, you were talking about antigenic uh, drift, we are not even talking about antigenic shift, which is much more dramatic. But even the drift, the mildest variation, can be sufficient for the antibodies not to bind optimally to the circulating strain. 
And hence, we, we find out that some people are not fully protected despite vaccination. And that is because of the antigenic drift, right? Yeah. And here, we start already, we start out already with infectious variants that are not the same as the wild virus, as the original virus. And as I was saying, this we have seen already in November before mass vaccination. So we are starting with a vaccine that from the very beginning, we know already that the antibodies that will be induced will not optimally interact with the circulating variants. That is exactly the same story with, with the flu drift, right? So we start already with something which is suboptimal, because if we talk about suboptimal, it's not just, of course, the level and the concentration of the antibodies. It's essentially how well do these antibodies match with the circulating variant. It's about the quality and the affinity of the antibodies. So if you have something which looks different, an S protein that looks different from the S protein in the original strain, for sure, the affinity of your vaccinal antibodies towards this variant S is not going to be as good as it would be towards the S protein of the original, the wild, the wild type, which we have been using in the vaccine. So, so you know, consensus is a, is an interesting subject in, when, when you have so so much uncertainty around, and you know, from the outside, we had pretty much felt that all you vaccinologists were of one mind. And of course, um, clearly that isn't the case. Um, again, coming back to people like Stanley Plotkin, for example, um, paper he's written with Neil Halsey in, in late January in clinical infectious diseases is, is doing, saying exactly what, what the UK government were doing, um, which is going against the um, principle of what was determined in phase three clinical trials that you would have a three-week interval before the the um, the, the second um, booster vaccination, and um, basically saying you've got to target if you have a limited number of of vaccines available, target the maximum number of people with a single dose, so you delay further the time at which you try and achieve closer to full immunity. Um, what do you say to that? I mean, can these guys um, be wrong with the science? Um, do you think that politics gets in the way of the science? Why do they have such a different view? And is there something, you know, you mentioned that you're in touch with a, a number of your colleagues on this matter and they're fully in agreement with you. Is there a kind of split developing between these two camps? Yeah, well, I think, well, and of course, with all my respect for uh, Stan Plotkin, you know, he's uh, really an icon in this field. I, I'm only compared to, he's the Empire State Building and I'm a small light like this. Uh, that, that's uh, no, no discussion about this. But um, there is one thing that is not regularly addressed in vaccinology books and, uh, you know, I would say in, in, in vaccinology in general, and, and that is immune escape. I, I don't think that even in all the brilliant work that Stan and colleagues uh, have published, there is like a chapter on, 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 on vaccine-mediated or vaccine-induced uh, immune escape, right? So, and... Um, is that because they don't think it's important? Is that because they think it's unimportant? I think it's it's uh, it's because uh, we are not we have not really been confronted with that phenomenon. Why am I saying this? 
because most of the vaccines that we are developing, the vast majority, or typically I call them prophylactic vaccines. This is to prevent an infection of the, or a disease. And if you want to prevent something, you better get a vaccine before you get confronted, in fact, with the infection or, or the disease. And, and for several reasons, it's, it's not a good thing if in the midst of infection, you get your vaccine because you could be vaccinating during the incubation time, or you could be vaccinating somebody who is already becoming ill, so it's not having an effect. And uh, so that is what we usually do with vaccines. And even when people say, because that is also a kind of criticism, yeah, you, you are wrong because look, if we have an epidemic, for example, of measles, et cetera, we go in with this type of vaccines. That is of course a very different situation. In those, in, in those situations, we are not really dealing with a pandemic. We do already have uh, an endemic situation where we have some herd immunity but all of a sudden, there is a weakness in this herd immunity because kids got not regularly immunized, there was a disturbance in the vaccination program, or a new group immigrated in that country, or, or whatever. And then, of course, the virus is endemic, can make these people ill, and you get a kind of outbreak. But immediately, when this virus now spreads to the other folks, they have their immunological memory. So they reactivate their immune response immediately, and that is very, very different from what we are facing right now. So we are not used to this because the type of vaccines we are uh, making, manufacturing, are typically administered before we get exposed to an infection or during an outbreak. But this is on a background, on a background of herd immunity. We are not having this. I'm, I'm telling you, 80% of folks, you know, even after asymptomatic infection, are not really primed against this. Uh, well, the, the, this is a this is a perfect segue to to look at um, what would have happened without a vaccine at all, to see what the pattern, the epidemiology of of the pandemic would have been without vaccines. And of course, we can here draw a little bit on history by looking at um, SARS and MERS before it. Um, you know, what features do you think, apart from the vaccine, um, what, what features, what created such a, a difference um, with, with, with these essentially SARS burning itself out over time? Well, Rob, the most fascinating thing about this uh, pandemic with regard to the virus, because that's your question, is that we have a very important subpopulation that has been in terms of reservoir, in terms of reservoir as well for infection as for disease has been, I think, largely underestimated. And these are the asymptomatically infected people. Typically in contrast to SARS-1, uh, SARS-2 can make people, you know, can infect people without uh, without any symptoms and they are shedding the virus and this is very different from SARS-1 for example where the peak of shedding is, is, is reached after the onset of symptoms even several days thereafter and then it's of course easy these people they, so they don't shed they don't shed um, virus before they get the illness and uh, and and by the time they shed uh, virus at very high levels, they have already been ill since a couple of days. 
So these people will, of course, because of the symptomatology, they will, of course, be taken care of. They will be isolated. They will get in the hospital, etc. In this way, we can very fast curtail the, the, spread, the spread of the virus, right? Now, this is very different with um, SARS-2, where you get an important part of people who are developing either no symptoms or mild symptoms, but they do spread the virus. And of course, asymptomatically infected, 80%, they constitute now an important reservoir for, vir for viral shedding. And uh, so it is, in other words, much more difficult. And, and that is the reason why all this quarantine and, and it has had little effect because you capture only the people who get, you know, symptoms, for example, or uh, and then you are too late. And there is many asymptomatically infected people. They are not aware they have the infection, etc. They can spread it. And hence, it becomes much more difficult to contain uh, to contain the infection. So the, the fact that SARS-2 is more prone to cause mild disease, eh, the severe disease or the exceptions, and that it can be spread to a significant extent by asymptomatically infected people makes the dynamics of this infection uh, completely different from, uh, from infections, especially also MERS, where you have severe disease, even high lethality, uh, a bit less with SARS-1, but where you can immediately, you must identify these people because they are ill. Eh? And when you identify, it's time enough, of course, to limit and curtail spread of, of, of the virus. So you can contain it much easily because people show it when they shed. They're, so, they're ill. So SARS-2 is, is much more insidious. So um, that's, that's the exact word, yeah, insidious. Yeah. insidious. Yeah. So, so you, you, you were talking about potentially uh, a problem that, that in a matter of weeks could spin dramatically out of control. And I think that's what's geared up your desire to to make this international warning um, for people who are glued to the news looking at statistics um, you know from Johns Hopkins or, or WHO or their national authority what kind of markers should people be looking at are we looking at just the the spread of mutant variants are we looking at particular countries like the UK and Israel that have had higher vaccination rates? Are we looking at uh, more cases, more hospitalizations, more lethality? Are we looking at just younger people becoming more easily infected? What are the markers that we should be looking for? Well, I think in the, scientifically speaking, for me, the markers, uh, and especially with regard to the impact of vaccination, which is now going on uh, pretty, pretty fast, uh, I think the one is, will we, will we still witness this steady increase in emergence of highly infectious variants despite increasing vaccination coverage? Will this be stopped or will it be continue? I'm definitely saying it will continue and even at the speed higher than we have seen before. So that is one market when people want to check this. The second is, of course, and that is a little bit more scientific, and I'm certainly not an expert in the field, but it will be, of course, interesting to look at where are the mutations of these new commerce in the field of highly infectious variants? Where are those mutations situated? Do they tend to increasingly converge, converge to the receptor binding domain? 
then that would be a clear indication that this goes completely against the antibodies that are primarily, the vaccinal antibodies primarily, of course, directed to this uh, receptor binding domain of the. So, so, so that, that would be a clear indication. Yes, we do breed uh, highly infectious variants through mass vaccination. So in terms of uh, populations, uh, well, of course, we have to acknowledge Every single country nowadays has its own vaccination, vaccination strategy. The, um, the uh, infectious strains or the infectious variants that are circulating may be uh, pretty different. Uh, the, also the demographics of people having uh, good innate immunity, my, uh, most of the time younger people. Uh, there is difference, of course, in demographics. For example, Israel has a pretty young population. Uh, countries like Belgium, I think it's, uh, it's not that much the case. So all this, how are these different populations distributed? What, is the, what are the circulating strains? What is exactly the, uh, the vaccination policy? Do we first vaccinate the elderly and then the younger people, or do we vaccinate all them at the same time, etc.? This will, this will have, of course, uh, an impact on, on how the curves will evolve. But for me, there is no doubt that mass vaccination Will will certainly lead to an increase in in the infection rates and and severe and uh, and cases of severe disease. Of course, in countries like, for example, the UK, where you have uh, very you know massive vaccination within within a few weeks or or or, or months, uh, vast majority of the population gets um, or or la large extents of the population get vaccinated. You get, of course, a steep decline first of the infection. And then that then is what, what what I'm saying is happening. The virus gets a serious blow in the face, but it can survive. Immune escape as immune escapants will need to establish themselves. And of course, it will be, take more time than in a situation where, the, like in Belgium, where vaccination rates uh, are progressing more slowly, where we have at this point in time, maybe 5% of the population that got the two shots. There we have seen, we have seen the decline, not as steep as in the UK, of course. We have seen the plateau, and I guess it will, it will be shorter or shorter than we will see in the UK. Well, as a matter of fact, we are already seeing a quite uh, impressive incline in new cases in Belgium. So the steeper, the, the more massive, uh, the, 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 the more extensive, the more ag aggressively you're vaccinating, the more you will see a very steep decline, you will have a longer plateau because the virus needs to re-establish itself, those uh, uh, escape immune. Uh, but then the, the, the incline will be much steeper than what we will see, for example, in Belgium. So this being said, this one element I want to add, of course, this can be dramatically influenced by containment measures. If, of course, now you combine this with containment measures, uh, you know, uh, in the extreme, with lockdowns, then of course you will delay this. You will delay this. But it's not like we are going to have a lockdown of six weeks and everything will be fine. And and there we go again. And I can explain why this is. Well, well, yeah. I, I, I think I think that's to a degree what governments have been trying, and and clearly it's been failing. And of course, if you have um, variants that are more capable of infecting young people asymptomatically, and then you couple that with, if you like, this third booster, the fact that the, 
existing vaccines are, if you like, being reformatted to cope with the new variants. Using your selection argument, you're actually both those processes are just driving the problem even further. Is that right? Of course. Well, first of all, first of all, this whole evolution, because I don't know whether you understand from what I'm saying that we are in fact in a kind of vicious circle and it's even a snowball, a snowball effect. So first of all, the variants are not going to wait till we have developed a new vaccine, right? I mean, the evolution of the new variants. Second, which vaccine are you going to develop? Because we are already dealing with 12 or 15 highly infectious variants. Which one are you going to pick? All the 15 of them? And then what worries me enormously is that you, one should not forget that uh, if, you, if, if you vaccinate somebody like we have been doing right now and they get in contact with uh, a new variant, that you will automatically reactivate the previous antibodies. This, this is called in immunology antigenic sin. People can look up what that means. So that means we are still, we have primed, we have primed the, the immune system. I was saying if we, if we, because the biggest catastrophe for me will happen when we start vaccinating our youngsters and the people who are in good health and have not been primed so far. I was telling you this search in antibodies is not a prime. So they have not been primed. Now we are going to prime them with the current vaccine, with this uh, S protein of the original wild strain. When those guys will be then infected or exposed by any kind of variant, the antibodies that will be reactivated, antigenic sin, or those that were primed, right? But those antibodies, we know very well, or not very active or functional against the current variants, let alone that they will be infection, that they will be functional against even, you know, uh, or uh, variants that have even a higher level of infectivity because they will be selecting, and that is certainly my hypothesis, they will be selecting um, mutations that are uh, situated in an even more narrow domain, in the receptor binding domain, right? That's the convergence, so, yeah. So, so, so there won't be any kind of match, but we will be sitting on these useless antibodies, and that is my argument, that will still be able to bind. It's, all, this is sign, all this is proven, all this is in the literature, that antibodies can still bind to the S protein without having neutralizing capacity. And by binding, they can still outcompete our natural antibodies. And that is the problem. And that is the problem, frankly. So, look, fascinating. The, from, from the point of view of shedding, we, we'll see increasingly society trying to get back to normal. So the issue of people being exposed to mutant variants becomes um, a problem. The, the general sense that, that uh, most people are um, educated around is that... Um, if you are vaccinated, you are protected um, and you won't transmit either not at all or only slightly. Um, is it possible that actually uh, people who are vaccinated will be shedding potentially mutant viruses? When, when we look at this idea of shedding and we're looking at partially vaccinated population, who poses a risk to who from a shedding point of view? Uh, well, I think, Rob, that is not, 
no longer a question anymore. I mean, there is sufficient proof, and you you have heard about all these these elderly homes, etc., where all of a sudden a variant comes in, and within 48 hours everybody is is is, is infected, right? And there is also publications, and of course, I was just saying, the more the variant will differ in the regard of its S constellation from the S constellation in the vaccine the less well these vaccinal antibodies will recognize, uh, will recognize the variant. And they may still be able at this point in time to protect against the disease, but they will no longer, they're no longer protective against the shedding. And I'm not saying, some people say, well, you know, they shed less, et cetera, and I fully agree. I fully agree they, 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 it, it, it is well possible that the shedding is diminished, but still, Remember, what is the biggest problem of SARS-2? I'm convinced of this. The asymptomatic carriers. Mm. Because they, 80% of the people, spread the virus. They are not aware whatsoever. Do they spread in high quantities or, uh, or, or during a prolonged period of time? No. This is short-lived, short-lived. But these are the dangerous folks. I mean, this is the insidious part of the infection. Now, what we are doing with the vaccination is we are turning people into asymptomatic carriers, right? And we are just saying, well, that is the problem of SARS-1. And we are just saying, well, I mean, if we, if we cannot uh, prevent, in fact, the, the, the infection in those people or the, the, the spread, then, I mean, asymptomatic carriers are, are, clearly, are clear, clearly a problem. So... That is exactly the, the opposite of what we want to reach with these vaccines. We want to have herd immunity. So that is to say we vaccinate as many people as we can, for example, 60-70%. And because these people are going to shed less, we will automatically protect the people who are not immunized, not naturally infected, or have not gotten the vaccine. I mean, it's exactly the opposite what we are doing. We are turning these folks into asymptomatic spreaders. That is not going to protect those who are not immunized. I mean, if you encounter somebody who has been vaccinated, why do we tell these people, by the way, it's not because you're not vaccinated that you shouldn't be wearing masks, etc. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. come on. It's because we know they're shedding, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. No, so, so and, and obviously coming back to the third shot idea, which is obviously the key strategy that's being used to deal with variants you will say this is akin to chasing your tail because first of all you've got to determine which which vaccines you're going to um, develop um, and we will carry on seeing more and more mutants and you'll be facing a, a situation that that's not that different from uh, influenza where you're just creating new vaccines every year hoping that most of it happens during the the winter months and we get a bit of a break in the summer and then we have so couldn't we see a pattern where, whereby we were just dealing with an endemic virus that's with us forever and, and um, people who choose to use vaccines carry on chasing their tails with vaccines. Other people look at immune enhancement, broader immune enhancement, which is certainly in the integrative medicine community that I'm very much more involved with. That tends to be the prime strategy. Yeah, well, mass vaccination, uh, as I was saying, cannot be the strategy. And you can even come with a, with a second vaccine and a third vaccine. All this is going to do is each time you vaccinate, you prime the immune system. Okay, you, you install a, a new software on your computer. And when 
now the immune system is encountering a new infectious variant. And, and those will have evolved, of course. I mean, those will no longer correspond to those that are in the new vaccines either. So then all these antibodies that have previously primed through vaccination, your vaccine one, your vaccine two, why not vaccine three, will be recalled. Massive, you know, mass of antibodies not being really functional because the variants have in the meantime evolved, but all capable of binding to S protein and had massive suppression of yeah. the innate immunity, which is for me, it's, it's a disaster. That's why I'm saying, what, when does this uh, impact becomes uh, very, very obvious, it will become very obvious when you vaccinate, especially people who do have a very good innate immunity, right? If you do this with people... Can just cover okay. off, can you cover off then this idea of suppression of the innate immunity? A lot of people will say the innate immunity is, is somewhat independent. It's occurring around the mucosal surfaces of the airways and the adaptive immune system is, is separate. It builds up. It's, so this, this idea of suppressing it, where is that coming from scientifically? Well, there is uh, scientific papers, and they are posted on, on, on the website, um, that clearly show that antigen-specific antibodies uh, bind much stronger to, you know, the, the, to the specific antigen than, this, than do, for example, uh, natural antibodies to the whole body, well, the body of the virus or the microorganism. So th that is to say, if you have a microorganism and you have a specific antigen that you want to target, for example, through a vaccine, then the antibodies you will be eliciting to this specific motif on this microorganism will always bind with much more affinity to this motif than that the natural antibodies will do. The natural antibodies they don't recognize specific motifs. They recognize the microorganism as a whole. This is by, because their binding uh, is based on a completely different concept. It's, uh, we call this in, in, it's also used in English, uh, ensemble, eh, from the French ensemble. It, it recognizes the whole, the entire particle through multivalent interactions, multivalent with different, several different motifs. It's a kind of binding that is completely different. Now, it, it has been clearly shown, documented in the literature, that the affinity of the natural antibodies for a specific motif versus the affinity of antigen-specific antibodies for a specific motif is about 100 or 1,000 times uh, less than uh, so, so of the natural antibodies versus the antigen-specific antibodies. And this is all by measuring dissociation constants and, and this type of things. But if we look yeah. at, say, the effects of um, natural killer cells that uh, you, you spent the last 10 years or so working with, but um, other elements of the, of the innate immune system, macrophages, dendritic cells that are shifting across to provide instructions to the um, humoral um, defense system. Um, how does that change, say, how a, an NK cell is going to go about its non-specific response to um, a cell that is infected with, with um, SARS-2 viral particles? Well, the, the NK cells, they uh, basically 
recognize exactly what I was saying, a little bit similar to the, uh, the IgMs, the natural antibodies. They recognize patterns. They recognize, you know, patterns that uh, are, could be self-mimicking. It could be some it could have some mimicry with 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 self proteins. You you can imagine if you have a, a cell that starts to degenerate, for example, or is pathologically altered due, for example, to cancer or something. Some self proteins start to degenerate or show alterations. It's the task of NK cells to eliminate those cells. Now, some pathogens have been so smart as to incorporate self-mimicking motifs that at the early stage of infection will be presented on the surface of those cells and NK cells recognize those patterns. They do not recognize a specific antigen. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that is also IgM recognizes those and can capture free-floating virus. And those, can, those complexes can be internalized into antigen-presenting cells. And then people tell me, yeah, but they should be presented on MHC class one, etc. I have gotten a lot of criticism. I will respond to those and show them how, how infection of, uh, for example, um, or, or internalization of uh, coronavirus into antigen-presenting cells can lead to presentation of these motifs on the surface of the dendritic cell. And hence, NK cells that are stimulated by this recognition will recognize similar patterns that are expressed on susceptible epithelial cells of the upper respiratory tract as soon as they get infected. So it's very, very fast, but it only occurs, of course, after the infection. So what we need to do is to prepare NK cells in a way that prior to infection, they can already, regardless, regardless of the natural antibodies, they can already recognize these patterns. Yeah. Because now they can only recognize, provided you have the natural antibodies. But older people and vulnerable people don't have them. Yeah. Well, so we'll, they, they, they don't come to the NK pathway, right? We'll, we'll, we'll get on to that in a minute. And of course, being healthy is, of course, a critical part of that whole equation. And it's perhaps the, the, the very reason that, that SARS-2... Um, is, is really creating most of the problem in people who, whose immune system is dysfunctional one way or another. Um, you, you speak with great confidence of your, your, your views, your hypotheses, um, partially ha having talked with you because you know that there are some very eminent um, immunologists and vaccinologists who agree with you who can't necessarily be named for political reasons. And this comes to the question of, of trust. At the moment, um, your views are conflicting with pretty much every major health authority. You are a whistleblower, if you like, providing with, with um, some justification uh, a view that, that um, there is, we're in the midst of essentially what is a doomsday scenario. Um, from the public's point of view, um, where are we in terms of this idea of scientific trust? Why are there so many views out there? Um, have you had kind of direct experience of situations that give you reason to believe that, um, that we shouldn't trust what's been out there? And, and, and I'll just sort of preempt that by when you and I had a conversation a couple of days ago we 
discovered we were both um, involved one way or another in the Ebola problem. Um, and I, I was working with the uh, Sierra Leone um, Ministry of Health on nutrition programs for Ebola patients, which were um, looking very promising two weeks into a trial where we were providing very high quality nutrition to um, patients who, who were unable to eat the diets that they were given through the World Food Program. Um, and th they were just lacking resources for their immune systems to, to, to function. The minute that the uh, vaccine became available, those programs were turned off. The vaccine became the, the sole um, part of the solution. You were involved in those programs, and I, I believe things uh, were somewhat uh, mysterious or complex or manipulated, if you like, from your perspective. So just coming back to this issue of trust, um, where are we at? Well, Rob, as you know, I, I'm a you know I'm a very spontaneous uh, guy, sometimes too spontaneous. So you know, <laughs> I'm not I'm not going. Uh, it, it's certainly not a matter of saying these uh, people are not trustworthy, etc. I think first of all, at this point in time, the only thing the only thing we should trust is the science. That is that is key. And I don't think, I, I, not at all, that anybody is having bad intentions or whatever. But as a matter of fact, for the first time in the history of mankind, literally, we are encountering a situation like this, where we are facing a pandemic and where for the first time we have massive human intervention, all with very good intention. I mean, of course, if the virus is spreading, wouldn't you tell people stay at home and uh, stay away from the virus? And if there is a possibility to, to, to have a vaccine where we have had so many successes, brilliant successes with vaccines, wouldn't you tell people, for God's sake, take the vaccine and as soon as we can all get vaccinated and have herd immunity, uh, you know, the, the, the virus will be wiped out, or at least we will uh, have herd immunity and control the virus. I mean, this is all very logical. I think it's really the complexity of the situation, the complexity, the, the interactions between the virus, the immune system in the midst, you know, of a, of a pandemic where we have, you know, very quick spread of the virus, where we have populations that are vulnerable versus others that are not vulnerable, where we have never ever uh, even thought about what could be the possible uh, consequences of, in of intervening with massive uh, infection prevention measures at a global scale. So the complexity is huge. Now, what I do think, and I come back to your, uh, to your question about trust and, and so on. So I can very well understand that with the best intentions, uh, we have uh, not done a very thorough homework. And uh, I think there is now increasing awareness that uh, these things may not have the happy end that we thought it would have in terms of the combination of those human interventions. And that is where I'm having a problem that people don't stand up and say, OK, regardless of my affiliation, etc., etc. Um, we must do something about this. I'm not even asking people, you know, it's not about people being wrong or right. It's not about me being wrong or right. It's about having the scientific discussion 
and and about considering the complexity because he, uh, all people now agree all scientists agree that this is a very com has become a very complex phenomenon especially now with those uh, increasing number of highly infectious variants uh, where we start vaccinating in some countries there seems to be a success okay wait and see in other countries despite uh, you know huge vaccination campaigns uh, the, the 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 rates of infectivity and and uh, of course uh, disease etc are still uh, increasing so people are asking themselves questions etc so it's time for an open debate and that is where the first thing I can understand, I mean, I, I think it just, you know, we have been too fast. We have not given sufficient consideration. We have looked at this in an isolated way. Of course, if there is a threat, you isolate yourself, you protect yourself. If uh, there is a disease, you, you take a prophylactic vaccine if you can. And we have been looking at this is an, in an isolated way, but this is a complete, it's a broad it's a very complex picture, and we need to put things in context, and we have not been doing that. Go governments, of course, are saying all the time, we're only following the science. And, of course, if we were to follow the science, then let's look at lockdowns. And I think we have a, a, a significant group of scientists around the world who's saying, look, yeah. consistently, around about 30 trials showing that, that um, or studies showing that, that lockdowns do not meet the intended objectives. We're seeing perhaps the same pattern beginning to emerge now with vaccines. So in many respects, it shows, throws a very big question mark about over what we consider to be science. Whose science? Um, is science now largely bought? Is it, um, is it something, you know, some of the key vaccinologists you're talking to cannot speak out. Um, and, and of course, we've seen a degree of censorship um, that, that is unprecedented, so that um, people like yourself should be able to open the front door of the WHO and walk in and have a, a scientific discussion. That can't happen, which is one of the reasons you and I are talking together now, because we need to communicate the information to have um, better discourse. Um, so politics is one of the factors. What, what about silos? Um, the fact yeah. that, that, you know, we've got epidemiologists and immunologists and, um, you know, medical doctors who, who've been vaccinating for years, not necessarily looking at the wider science. Um, is that one of the problems? You're, what's very interesting from my perspective is, as a vaccinologist, you seem to be standing back from the situation, possibly something that's also happened in your own career because you've been looking at adaptive and latterly more on the innate side and then you're looking also at evolutionary arguments but is this perhaps a problem of technocracy where science has become so specialized that um, each of the individual silos are working independently from one another yeah exactly Rob exactly I mean one of the big problems we are having right now in uh, especially this type of discipline is no longer seeing the forest for the trees, right? And um, everybody is indeed uh, very much specialized. Look, I mean, very openly, and it's not, not about me. I'm not a top virologist. I'm not a top immunologist. I'm not even a top vaccinologist. But I do have some good knowledge of all these three fields. And basically, I'm, I'm repeating this. My only merit, if I may say, is to put, put pieces of the puzzle together. I, you know, first of all, to identify the problem. I've been identifying the problem 
as you know the, the the emergence of these highly infectious strains all of a sudden i thought well this is unprecedented this is why do you do this so first of all you got to be ready to see what is really i'm a problem solver i'm i'm, I'm not a publication right i'm a problem solver so you identify the problem and then you tap into all these different disciplines that you're familiar with and you can take a deep dive in some you know details if you think they are relevant to solving the problem and that is a completely different way of tackling a problem than you know writing publications and being focused on one single aspect and i'm the first to say publications are incredibly important right because that is where we draw important information from but it's not finished with the publication there is no single publication i think that so far has solved a global problem a problem like this one a global problem it, it you need to draw from the different disciplines and that is what i've been doing and i've been doing a proper homework because if i if I find those elements and I, I, I manage to put them together in a kind of puzzle that makes sense and that can also explain to me, look, I mean, without that is not uh, something I'm, I'm proud of. But so far, you can ask my, my family, my relatives, I've been predicting exactly everything what, 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 is, what is happening right now. More infectious variants, despite massive vaccination, curves will go up again. Uh, you know, uh, not having this thing under control. Uh, so it's 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 really about also the willingness. You say, okay, we need to solve this. This is so important. This uh, it, you know it, it concerns humanity. So you cannot give up. You cannot give up. You know, it's complex. It's different disciplines. You have to draw from all these disciplines. You have to understand the problem very well, and you have literally to say, well, it cannot be that we cannot solve it. And and I think we, we 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 can solve it. So for me, it's not a doom scenario. Yes, it would if we don't intervene, because now we have no choice anymore. You could, could have been a debate: should we have let the pandemic run its natural course? Uh, that can be a debate, of course, because ninety percent without severe symptoms, uh, and then people severe symptoms. But if we early intervene, we can rescue a lot of them. But now. We, this debate is is doesn't make sense anymore. We, we must intervene. We we can't we can't go back. So look, I, I want to finish yeah. by by two two key questions. One is, if you could open the door to the Belgian government or the um, ECDC or the Israeli government, the British government, any um, any government, um, any health authority. What would you say to them to do now? This is not about going back on what's been done, but from now moving forward. And I want to look at that. And then and then secondarily, from the individual's point of view, what should people do? So let's start by looking at what could health authorities do now? Well, I think, first of all, uh, what we should really consider is uh, well, first of all, yeah, but Stop, you know, stopping point, stopping vaccination is is the question yeah, I'm really asking. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That, that I, I'm I'm extremely serious about. It's extremely yeah. serious, and and my viewpoint has not changed whatsoever. Is stop, please, stop immediately this mass vaccination uh, campaign. The second is um, well, just you know, based on 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 the science that I think uh, makes a lot of sense is okay we know our young and healthy people could even be people 75 years old in perfect health they do have good innate immunity that has been clearly proven during the first wave 
we haven't seen any kids or youngsters or even people in, in, in good health, elderly people, you know, doing exercise and not having overweight, not having underlying diseases. These people didn't get ill. So this is clearly, and there's more evidence of this, that that, that is thanks to their innate immunity. So innate immunity is un unbelievable, precious. It, it, is, it is so precious, we need to conserve this. My point is, because that is the only way I can explain why people who are protected during the first wave don't develop symptoms all of a sudden during the second wave become ill. What we are seeing now, right now in our hospitals are younger people. And I thought they were protected in the first. So why all of a sudden do they become vulnerable? The only explanation for me that makes sense is the competition with the antigen-specific antibodies, the surge they have, the, the short-lived surge, yeah, but yeah. if during that period they become infected, reinfected, I mean, their innate immunity is suppressed. And that likelihood that that happens increases when you have an increasing amount of infec highly infectious strains that are circulating. So yeah. if, that is, if that is really true, which I think it is, then in order to preserve this precious innate immunity that, by the way, is functional against all the variants, even if we have still 250 other variants coming up, it's, it's, it's functional against all coronavirus. If we want to preserve this, we need to avoid suppression of that innate immunity by antigen-specific antibodies. And this is the, the, the short-lived search I'm talking about. So I'm advocating for, I, I know it's available in the US. It's, um, I don't think there is any available or reliable test in, in uh, in, in Europe, a serodiagnostic finger prick test, where people you know, could simply monitor whether they have antibodies. Of course, uh, there shouldn't be any false negative results. But if they have antibodies, they know after four, four to six weeks, these antibodies will disappear. Yeah? In the literature, they say no single antibody detectable after eight weeks. But it could well be that already after four weeks, you know, the, the concentration is not strong enough anymore to really outcompete the natural antibodies. So in that way, being negative, these people can go out. I mean, they have their full-fledged innate immunity, and by going out, they can train this immunity. Because remember, innate immunity has no immunological memory. It needs to be trained, and they can, can train it. So this would free up all our youngsters and, and, and all people in good health who could monitor themselves. I'm not saying this is a recommendation. I'm saying I really think it's worthwhile investigating into this. I think it's very important. The third thing that goes with this is, for God's sake, this is a unique opportunity for governments and, and political leaders to call up to their people to take good care of their health, of their lifestyle. Please, guys, avoid abuse of alcohol, tobacco, drugs, etc. Drink a beer, but you know, always moderate. Says, says a Belgian. Yeah. So, same <laughs> healthy food exercise. I told you, I would love to see the the the, the statistics of uh, people who got COVID disease and uh, who did regular exercise and had no overweight, for example. These are only two criteria. There is many more, and we know there is publications about this. They're also on the website. The correlation between good health and innate immunity. There is a very strong correlation. So this was the third thing. The fourth thing is need, of course, to protect the people who can no longer rely on this innate immunity, especially given the fact that we have an increasing amount of new variants, of course. 
And these are the people, I'm, I, I think it's sad to say, but who are, have been naturally infected and have these specific antibodies, but also more and more people who got vaccinated. We need to protect these people. Uh, that is absolutely important because we see already right now that antibodies become are less and less functional against those uh, new variants. And I'm afraid, I, my fear is that within the next days or weeks, we will have full resistance even. When that happens, these functional antibodies, you know, people can, can throw them in the bin. They're completely useless. It's even worse. They suppress their innate immunity. So they have nothing to rely upon. And, and that would be extremely sad. So we need to protect these people. The good news is, and something I had to learn, is that there is incredible progress with regard to early treatment of COVID. I mean, there are folks, that, uh, this has been published in peer-reviewed journals who have uh, a kind of, yeah, you could call it a cocktail. It's several different uh, medication. All of them uh, are approved, uh, safe, etc. that people can take and that have been proven to reduce hospitalization and severe disease by 85%. Can you imagine when I hear this, when I see this published, I think it should be by law, any medical doctor who, who, who diagnoses COVID-19 disease or, or infection even, infection, should not let the, the patient go home and say, just say, yeah, you know, you should isolate and, and go in quarantine and wait and see. Uh, these people, it should be law that these people are automatically provided with the first aid package. Uh, to, to... I, I think you're talking here of the, the frontline um, COVID-19 critical care alliance. Um, and of course, what's fascinating, we, we talked about the politics behind it. Um, Pierre Corey, Paul Marek and others involved with it have, um, have faced an incredible array of brick walls when you're looking at um, NIH, um, US government, um, CDC in, in uh, getting this approach through despite essentially it being developed on the fly in um, critical care facilities in US hospitals. Um, and we've seen obviously more and more doctors that there is the World Doctors Alliance that's brought together doctors around the world. Um, many doctors who are practicing these sort of multifactorial approaches um, are actually in the in the process of losing their licenses. So there, there is um, huge resistance to anything that gets in the way of vaccines. What one of the things you haven't mentioned in relation to governments is is lockdown and social isolation um, for healthy people. Um, I, I, I gather you're you're saying turn off lockdown and no social distancing. Yeah. Yeah, well, people who are vulnerable, I was saying, especially, I think, elderly people who got vaccinated, their innate immunity is, uh, we know, is weakened anyway. And then with regard to the further suppression by antigen-specific antibodies that, you know, we know have already weakened, uh, weakened functionality, uh, these people, we, we have to protect them. And I'm not saying this is an... Um, this is really a long-term solution, but these measures, I think, will allow us to buy time, to buy time, to come. Frankly speaking, I don't see any other way than to develop a vaccine that can that has sterilizing immunity, that can really eradicate these infectious strains. And whether people say this is something like maybe an, an oral attenuated, or it is based on NK cells, etc., but we 
we must get rid of these highly infectious variants. I mean, this is uh, this is going to be a catastrophe. I'm 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 telling you, people uh, think we go six weeks in in lockdown as if that would eradicate the virus. The virus will persist, and when, of course, it will reinfect, it will reactivate all these vaccinal antibodies that we know have low functionality of low against against those highly infectious strains that we are continuing breathing like every every week there, there is new of them so when it when it comes up again when when again this infectious strain after six weeks of, of lockdown will spread people will not be protected it will recall useless antibodies that suppress your innate immune system and that is that is simply a catastrophe so we need to eradicate them and the only way is a vaccine that induces sterilizing immunity that is my humble opinion and but again same with the early treatment. When there is no scientific debate and no consolidation, people do you know what is at, at their best knowledge, or or they, they they try to find solutions themselves because there is so little guidance. And and then of course it 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 yeah it gets out of control. So in order to have something that gives also some guidance to people, we need to put our our heads together and and we we have to promote things that we think are common de denominators and, and, and make sense and that should really be implemented. It cannot be that we have people sitting at home till they are severely ill and then bring them to the hospital and the next day they are on a mechanical ventilator. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. We, we've, we've seen the, I mean, many of your views are consistent with the views of the Great Barrington Declaration. And of course, you, you saw that the governments around the world were, were absolutely not willing to go ahead with, with any, any of these. Um, it seems to me that what will have to happen before we see a dramatic change in strategy from governments is, is broad-scale vaccine failure. And at the moment, that, that, that's not being accepted. We're not seeing that, that there is failure. Uh, in fact, quite the reverse. So I, I think your your words are are going to be remembered because you called them out very very strongly at this stage. And frankly, it, it's one of the reasons that we wanted to be um, clear about the kind of markers that should be looked for. Because um, for many people, you know, they want early warning of what might happen, the kind of catastrophe that you're alluding to. Um, and it seems governments have been very remiss on one really important thing, which is to help people understand how they can develop broader immunity. The, the, the problem with the primary strategy is that it is incredibly specific. So if the virus works its way around that, you have no protection. And if you're then doing things that, that ultimately reduce your immune resilience, you're going to have a much bigger problem if we do have immune escape. Yeah. So the only the the only advice that will come from the governments, I know it, is lockdown, right? Mm -hmm. If 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 everything gets out of control despite vaccination, because they will think, well, we have only vaccinated like twenty or thirty percent of the people, so we should have vaccinated all of them. So the I mean that that is that is the thing that is so uh, yeah, it's. It's so sad, of course, that, you know, uh, uh, we will see that increasing vaccination rates will not have the success that, you know, people are hoping for. But of course, 
you know, those who drive those vaccination campaigns will say, well, we are only at 30%. We should now start vaccinating the younger population, etc. So that happens when you look at an individual group. If you just look at the elderly, of course, they, you know, so far, they, they are protected against severe disease. You don't need to hospitalize, but we don't assess. We refuse to look at what is the impact of protecting this group of, for example, you know, the, the, the kinetics and, and the infectiousness of the virus in other populations. The, popula the, the, the virus who is yet in the younger population cannot get to those. It cannot make these people ill, which is the most profitable situation for the virus, is to make people ill because then virus is shed for a long time in a high concentration. So the virus has no choice when it wants to continue to persist and propagate than to increase its infectiousness in the younger population. So if you, if you look just shorter, eh, because now the elderly are protected, I don't know what's going to happen with these vaccinated people in, in, in a few months from now, when even more infectious strains are, are going to, you know, they're going to be exposed to those strains. Well, the protection against disease will still hold. I, I, I don't know, but my fear is uh, it may not, right? And, and so, so looking short term and only at one segment of the population is completely wrong because we simply extrapolate and say, well, this is the right thing to do for the elderly. So we are now going to do this for the young people as well, whereas there is absolutely no scientific evidence. Uh, what we are doing this mass vaccination campaign at this scale and, uh, you know, that is without knowing uh, very well the pathogenesis of the virus without not I've seen very, very little consideration of these intricacies and this interrelationship between the immune system, the host immune system and the virus uh, within a pandemic. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we have never encountered it, so there is no evidence. But nevertheless, we are implementing massive campaigns. And that is that is what, what worries me enormously. And, and of course, if you want to avoid the catastrophe, so to say, yeah, you do lockdown. But as I was saying, it's not going to solve the problem. No, it's exactly. not going to solve the problem. Well, I think you've also raised a very interesting question, which is that if you look at the resource that's being expended on um, antigen monitoring, whether it's through PCR testing or, or lateral flow tests, um, you're essentially suggesting that if there was a switch to looking to monitoring antibody status, that would give us a clear instruction of who could do what when? Well, so far, what has been the problem? This is a suggestion. I'm trying to be, I'm, I'm extremely concerned about myself, my, my, my family, my friends, etc. So we, we need to, 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 you know, to, to torture our brain and to see how we can we get out of this. So it's only a suggestion. But as a matter of fact, initially, these tests have been developed to, uh, because people were hoping Oh, based on my antibody titer, I will see whether I, prote when I am protected or not. Now, it's very clear that the level of your antibody titers, antigen-specific antibody titers, is not correlated. It's not like there is a threshold and you're above the threshold, you're protected. So that is a little bit why the reason why these tests have not been further developed. Some of them seem to be pretty much okay, but uh, I've not checked you know, how reliable they are. Uh, but here the purpose is very different. The purpose is simply, do I have antibodies? Do I have antibodies? Because then I'm at risk of having 
my natural antibodies outcompeted. Um, maybe not as long as they are detectable, but it's. I, I think it's worthwhile investigating because if we can preserve the innate immunity in our youngsters and healthy people and get them exposed again so that they can drain it, I mean, they are protected against all variants, against all coronavirus. I mean, this is so precious. It's basically the only thing that remains when we lose all the rest. Yeah, you and, and I will finish off um, very shortly, but you mentioned the idea of training and the innate immune system. And I know you've got some specific views on this. Mo most uh, immunologists would say, well, the innate immune system is innate. It's just the way it is. Yes, it's affected by um, um, the resources that you have available, your general state of health, how old you are. Um, and it is the adaptive immune system that develops over time that, that is trained. Um, you are also suggesting that, that the innate immune system can be better trained to deal with pathogens like SARS-CoV-2. It can better be trained to, I hate to use the word specific because that would be you know, a contradiction, but it can be better trained towards coronavirus. So, I mean, all this is in the literature. If you got a common cold, for example, it seems like you are protected against COVID only for a short time. And I'm not saying it's all the people, but there is a correlation. Having previous infection with a common cold and then being exposed to COVID, there is evidence, there is literature about this, that you may enjoy short-term protection against uh, COVID-19. So yeah. all these things, this is a, a corona-specific training, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and that is what I'm alluding to, right? So, Don't be afraid if your innate immune system is, is okay, you will just... And I think, I think, I think we, the, the one thing we can all agree on is that staying healthy, um, being replete with the right nutrients that your innate and adaptive immune systems need is, is a no-brainer. And it, it is, um, to some extent, pretty disappointing, but also predictable that we've heard almost no guidance from a sort of public health messaging point of view. Um, the authorities have been derelict in their duties in, in managing public health in that manner. So, um, well, Geert, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating talking with you. Um, I think um, you, you've laid out many of your arguments um, very concisely. There are going to be many who, who agree, there are going to be many who disagree. I think the most important thing now is to have discourse. You've also been very clear about what to expect if things start to, to go the way that you are predicting. Um, and, and we can already see a number of markers that are suggesting some very significant problems down the road. Um, so um, I want to thank you. Obviously, we'd love to talk to you again as things unfold. Um, and um, it really is quite something to have um, someone at your stage of your career um, standing up um, and um, speaking to, to good science. Well, Rob, uh, on my side, I thank you as well for giving the opportunity. I hope, I hope this will really trigger a serious and an open scientific debate, and I would prefer this far above uh, waiting to see who is wrong and who is right. Eh? Are the curves going to go up despite fact? No, I mean, we have so much science available. We just need to challenge it, each other 
and have that debate so that we can to some extent to some extent try to to anticipate uh, uh, and and avoid the type of scenario that I'm afraid I think is going to happen if we if we just uh, rely on lockdowns and and continue this mass vaccination so thank you very much I appreciate it thank you so much Kurt.